Welcome to Mile High Magazine with your hosts, Adam Morgan, Murphy Houston, and Melissa Moore. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Now, here's your host, Adam Morgan. All of our lives have the same thing in common. We have a definite beginning, and at some point we will have an ending. What's important is what you do in between, as the adage goes. For one of our guests, she has been told that her time on the planet is wrapping up sooner than later, and she is firmly on the clock. Terminal. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. She has made her peace and is good with her situation. As a mentoring counselor who has actually been there, done that, and survived addictions and abuses, she wants others to know that without a doubt, they can too survive and recover from similar circumstances beginning right now. The key to doing so is already well-centered inside themselves. Laura, we'll call her, with James Gillespie, Community Impact and Government Relations Liaison of Mile High Behavioral Healthcare, are our guest on this edition. No one in the third grade ever raised their hand and said, when I grow up, I can't wait to be addicted. And that's just the reality. So addiction occurs when an individual's life circumstances intersect with a broken system. So it's twofold. Uh, an individual certainly makes a choice. Yeah. But at the same time, a broken system might encourage that choice. I recently had um, some back pain and I saw my doctor and I was prescribed an opioid, which I did not use, uh, which I thought was pretty incredible because he didn't ask if I had any history of addiction. You know, and you would think that that would be a hmm. fairly commonplace question before yeah, someone. Yeah, 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 it would be, no. And it was a new doctor, so you would think that would be top of the list to ask. It wasn't a question that was asked. So I think that uh, our medical community does need to be circumspect in how they prescribe opioids, and I think it's very fair to get to know your um, your patient uh, to the extent that they want to be known. And I think it's a fair question to assess for the possibility of addiction before, frankly, doling out something that might support it. And that's something that the public needs to do too. Is be honest if you have if if you are was it a, a prone to addiction, let the doctor know. Because he can prescribe the right stuff for you, so you'll be okay. And not thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. I won't tell him, wink, wink, you know, because I don't want him to know, and, and that'll lead to something else. And you, you can't have that fear because once you get hooked into that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be really hard to get out because I know a lot, lot of the clients that you've told me about, that's, that's one of the things. It's just, you know, they, they're not upfront about it. You know, right here in Colorado, 70% of everyone that reported uh, that they used heroin. Seventy percent of them said, uh, "I started before heroin. I just used the prescription drugs that my doctor was giving me. It was literally the gateway into utilizing heroin." Uh, unfortunately, it's a, a legal gateway in the sense that a doctor is prescribing something to their patient. Uh, so again, there there are some best practices in pain management. There's a report that was recent released uh, by the top experts in the field that that uh, ask uh, the medical community to be circumspect, to get to know your patient profile. Maybe there's a holistic approach. There are other ways yeah. to address pain 
mm-hmm. that might not necessarily uh, be through a, a prescription drug. Uh, so they did mention things like acupuncture, acupressure, holism, meditation, mindfulness, all of these other things that help reduce stress because stress aggravates pain. It happens to be pain. things that years ago nobody said would work. I mean, we're not going to spend any time with that. But now we're looking at it. We are. You know, it's not a one shoe fits all. And so I can imagine in, in the busyness of every single day of seeing patients and yeah. being understaffed and overwhelmed – that, you know, uh, one might be tempted to just go toward one direction or another. But the reality is that uh, it takes time to get to know your patient and to build trust. Yeah. And that kind of trust can result in a better medical outcome uh, if that time is invested in. How are our teens doing? Are you having more teens showing up there at uh, Mile High? Or are we having less now because all the information is out, all the help is out? They should be making better decisions. You know, uh, one thing about teens for sure is the old dare model doesn't work. The just say no doesn't work. You know, that's a a philosophy, uh, and I'll age myself when I was in school, just say no. Uh, And that that goes with uh, drugs as as much as as well as it goes with um, uh, sexual activity. Just say no doesn't work in the sense of talking to our teens. Uh, What works is... Um, really teachable moments, particularly where parents can talk to their kids in teachable sure. moments, not disciplinary moments, just teachable moments. So what, do you, well, what are your teens saying to you, the ones that are there that you're caring for, you're, you're looking after, why they got started in the first place? Because of a, a dare from a friend or it almost as if, come on, I'm 12. What kind of problems do I have <laughs> that's going to lead me down this path? You know, a lot of teens say I'm surprised at how silent or uninterested my parents are. And that's just the reality. Um, And so a lot of uh, parents don't know how to talk to their kids about, well, pot is legal now in our state and all these shops are, you know, right down, right down the street. So what does this mean? How do we talk about these things? Um, So it really is more about the relationship between the parent and the teen. So a parent just can't say, don't do it. You know, it's their choice. It's their family choice to address it. But as far as what works best, you know, uh, they, they should they, – there's some great guidelines if they go on, online and look at a group called SAMHSA, the Substance, Immutal, uh, some, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA. If they go online and look at the SAMHSA webs, website, S-A-M-H-S-A, sure. they'll find resources on how do you talk to your kids? You know, what are some ways to do it that are – informal but just as you know authoritative as a parent but but in a way that uh, you know kid or teenager can digest and understand and not kind of put the earmuffs on yeah uh, and immediately shut down well after you all help them there are you seeing them recidivate and come back again you know not really and here's why we have a great program with urban peak where urban peak provides the shelter and then we provide the substance abuse and mental health treatment uh, and so what, why that works very, very well is you're addressing the outside person needs as well as the inside person needs. Yeah. So, for example, that same group I mentioned earlier, SAMHSA, uh, we received a grant back in the day. And when we wrapped it up, we, we had all the metrics lined up. So through that partnership with Urban Peak and Mile High Behavioral Health Care, uh, one year after these teens, and that's about 18 to 25, we yeah. call them transition age youth, one year after the Exeter programs, 92% of them were still permanently housed. Wow. Good, good. And so they won't be back, we hope. Only to volunteer. Only to volunteer. 
That's good. And speaking of volunteers, I think you have with you, she might not be a volunteer anymore, but she was one of your peer coaches. You know, I'd, I'd like to call her an inspiration, rather. You know, uh, we have we have a lot of staff uh, at Mile High Behavioral Healthcare, and and Laura Elliott's a peer coach. But any any member of our staff would just call her pure sunshine. Uh, it's one thing to put out evidence based therapies and counseling into a group of people. Uh, it's another thing to say, "I've been there, done that." I I have the T-shirt. I made the T-shirt. You know, uh, we're we're going to take you from victim to victory, and here's how. And yeah, that sure. that that's Laura for you. All right, Laura. I guess you have had an interesting walk, but as a peer coach, you can actually say you've been there and done that. Yes. And I bought the T-shirt, gave it to Goodwill, and bought it back again. And bought it back again. So when they, when kids or adults are trying to give you a reason why they did it, and maybe they're going to do something again with opioids or that kind of thing, you can say to them, uh-uh, don't give me that. I usually say lies, lies, hamburger thighs, because it stops them in their tracks and they laugh, and we have this moment and we connect. Yeah. And I said, I say to them, you can't give me any excuse I haven't created and used myself. So we start from a place of honesty. Is that is, is that the key, though? You have to be honest with yourself and not keep giving yourself excuses? Part of that is. When you're, behavior when you're, that's not working? When you're stuck in addiction, you don't remember what honesty is. You have really? to. Sur- a lot of them have to survive and steal in order to pay for their drugs. And so they compartmentalize honesty altogether. So when they come in and we have this moment and I call them out on it, we we get to connect. So the cure of addiction is reconnection. Not only are they mm. disconnected from other people, but they're disconnected from themselves. And so the first step is meet them where they're at. What, why are they saying they're going down that trail to begin with? Why did you go down yours? I know you had some medical challenges, which led to some of it. But even after you learned what it was doing to you, you weren't honest with yourself and said, ah, you know, I'm going to be okay. Let me try this anyway. I didn't know how. I was too bogged down with shame and regret. And I hid behind those binders for a long time. You know, I didn't go out and party and use drugs for that. I hid in my closet. I was too ashamed to put it out there or reach out for help in any way. It wasn't until I was intervened by the Denver drug court system that then I could turn around, then I had a safe environment to learn how to be honest all over again. I could be honest all day long about everything except for this little little piece of me, my addiction, that I didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. You you wanted to come on to at at least, you know, to be upfront and honest and one-to-one with listeners who some may be having a similar walk to you. As yours, but uh, let me try it again. May not be having a similar walk as yours, but with addictions and uh, misuse of prescription drugs and that kind of thing, you have something in common. Yes, and, and, and you're able to let them know, hey, 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 now, now you you can get past the other counselors and everybody else, but somebody who's been there with you, can we talk? As they say, exactly. I call that being a professional illusionist. Mm-hmm. So no matter what I did in my walk, I could say what you needed to hear so I could get past you and keep doing what I wanted to do. And that's when it was, you know, heavy. When I had the ability or the opportunity, I should say, at Mile High to reconnect with 
other individuals, other addicts, staff members, and then myself, then my then everything changed. Then I was able to make a decision clearly. Do I want sobriety or do I not? Ooh, that comes down to it's just that clear. It's just that clear. And I made the decision that I want a sober life and I want it to look like X, Y, and Z. And so that's what you're saying to people who may be listening and may be faced with that same choice. Yes. Or maybe dancing around that choice. Yes. So they don't have to make that decision yet. Exactly. It comes down to that. And as soon as they grab a hold of it and make that choice, the better off they're going to be. Right. They get stuck. I say they, but I mean myself as well. I'm stuck in the pattern of I'm a victim and my emotions rule everything. I'm stuck in the shadows of my addiction. And if I'm under the influence of, of alcohol, pills, crystal meth, whatever it is, I cannot think clearly. I cannot get to that point of making a decision. It's only when the dust settles just a little bit, at least a few days sober, that I can clearly make a decision. So, so you, you've, you've gone down, down that trail with alcohol, drugs, crystal meth? Yes. I was 47 years old before I tried crystal meth the first time. How crystal meth get in there? Because the rest of it, you were responding to other medical challenges, but crystal meth, I don't think it's prescribed for anything. Exactly. I had graduated from the, uh, not Denver, but Fort Collins Drug Court. Yeah. And I was living an exemplary life with my children. And um, I was not doing the things that I was doing before in my sobriety. The things yeah. that got me sober, I stopped doing. And the minute I stopped doing those things, I started to unravel little by little. So when somebody presented crystal meth to me for the first time, I had never seen it, never read anything about it, didn't know anything about it. I said, okay, because it's that same ism from alcoholism or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's that thought process. And that thought process or what we call stinking thinking in AA is simply I want to reach outside of myself to grab whatever I can get a hold of to cure what's ailing me on the inside. And that's the ism right there. What's ailing you on the inside, yes. that's what you have to face. You have to you have to cover it up when you're struggling. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable you cannot face it. Or if you're adding shame and guilt and all that stuff on mm-hmm. top of it, no way. Uh-uh, can't face it. It's too painful. You can't face it, but in order to gain a cure or to become sober or better, you have to. Yes, you have to. So and that's you, where the strength is needed. Yes, Yes, and that's where just having an opportunity with one other person who sees you for just a moment, you know, to reconnect with you somehow, some way, well, it doesn't matter how dirty or stinky you are or whatever, just takes that time, then you have that little bit of faith, and from there it builds, and it becomes this beautiful transformation. How hard was it for you to let somebody else in Oh, so they could do that with you? I couldn't let anybody in my family in because I had convinced myself that I damaged all those roads, that there was no road home. But maybe, just maybe, there was a road forward. I thought I had damaged everything behind me, and I had to leave it behind. And even then, I did not want to stay under the under all of that addiction any longer. Even if I couldn't have my family back, mm-hmm. I wanted to be sober. And I finally wanted it for me. That's the key. That is the key. 
And you, you can't convince somebody of that. They have to get there. If you could give them an opportunity for that and reach them where they're at, then they could grow tremendously. And if they have the opportunity then to unravel the catalyst of the reason why they used it in the first place, that you've got somewhere. But what you're saying, though, is that somebody has to get them there. Yes. What do you say to them about getting themselves there? How do they get themselves there? Because at the end of the day, somebody, I could help you, but someplace you got to make that leap of faith. You have to say, I can do this. I want to do this. I can do this. And yes. say it yes. often, 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 often enough that you can believe it and you take the steps Exactly, exactly. And I, I think I didn't say it correctly the first time. That's okay. <laughs> it is definitely a personal decision that they have to believe that they can do it and that they want it. And they have to get themselves there. How do they get themselves there? A lot of times when you are miserable in your addiction and you're coming down from a high, mm-hmm. the last thing you want is to get high again. You try everything you can not to get high again. And then it comes around full circle. Really? You it, try everything not to get high? Again. Yes, you do. You try distractions, you try walking away, you try changing your friends, you try this. The conventional wisdom is everybody wants to get high again because then they can escape whatever's. No. no, You really don't want to. They don't want to be high. Okay. They don't want the repercussions of what comes from being high Mm -hmm. or being homeless or hell, being homeless because you want to continue to get high or being high versus being with your family. Nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that, but they don't have. Whatever it is, they haven't made the decision to walk a different way. Yeah. And then make that decision stick is a whole second second part of it. Mm-hmm. You can make the decision over and over every day. Okay. Hey James, is that if somebody calls Mile High, is this the this is the kind of help that you can you can provide there? When they call the number, they're gonna to talk to somebody. That's and, right. That's right. So you don't have to have all the answers, uh, but you can call for the answers. Uh, And we're at 303-825-8113. And uh, it it could be easy as ABC, uh, accept the reality, uh, be there without judgment, and then C, connect to resources. So if you're an individual ready to take that first step, give us a call. If you're a family member or a friend who sees someone not ready to take that first step, but you want to be supportive and you want to figure out how, give us a call. Well, well, that's what, what Laura is saying is that they need somebody to intervene and get them down that trail or at least start or give them a reason to get down that mm-hmm. trail. Mm-hmm. So speaking to those who may have a family member or somebody they know who really needs some help, mm-hmm. then they need to have the courage to help their friend, to help their family member by giving you a call and and somebody on the other end of the phone will help them figure out what happens next. That's right. So not everyone is the same. However, a lot of folks line up in one of two camps. One, they finally hit rock bottom. Yeah. I mean, they hit it. And and that was the eye-opener for themselves. I mean, they just hit it. And th- that opened their eyes. The other one is intervention. Someone loved them enough to say, you're going to die if you continue doing this. And... Intervention is not something to be taken lightly, so you should always contact a professional because there's very um, – it, it doesn't have to be uh, – the professional doesn't have to be there, but there are specific things that uh, they can uh, tell you that can help make an intervention successful. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. So what's the number again? Uh, the number is 303-825-8113. Or if it's after hours, uh, you can call a 24-7 national helpline, which is 1-800-662-HELP. So at the end of the day, they have to save themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Laura, I know the one thing you wanted to do was to at least get the message out to those who have uh, had to deal with substance abuse and the things that you have dealt with, that they can come through it and that they can do it. And uh, I know you had shared with, with us that the medical community has given you a terminal, as you said, that you have a terminal illness. And one of the things you want to do is to get this message out that others can get it done. Yes. After going through everything else that you've been through, how did you respond when the doctor said, you know, you got a terminal illness? That's probably the biggest mountain hurdle of all that you faced. It was interesting, the timing of it, too, because I had just become a peer coach at Mile High two months prior to getting the diagnosis. Yeah. And I made a decision when I got that diagnosis that I could either fraud my doctors out of out of drugs and go back down that road because you know, maybe some people would feel sorry for me and give me drugs or I could face it honestly and walk through it authentically with my clients. So I chose the latter. So we all went through it together and it could be used for good at all times. When I was bald, my clients helped me. They listened to all of it. A lot of them smashed their crap pipes because <laughs> they said, if she's going through that, we're going to, we're going to try this. And so it, did, it didn't send you back to recidivism in any no, of that. No, no. As a matter of fact, it made me stronger. I made a decision right then and there to share it. And then I looked at it as a gift, as a gift from God. I had the opportunity to reprioritize what I was spending my time on. And so I cut a few things out of my life and I kept the, the special things in. And I walked with purpose. So really, it's a gift. I get to walk with purpose every day. For as many days as I have. And the way you just explained that and getting that done, um, you know, some will say, well, no, I don't, I'm not religious, so I can't do it. But you didn't explain it like that. It's walking with purpose. Anybody yes. does that. Yes. Secular or religious, you can do that. Absolutely. And, and, and you said, that's what I'm going to do. And you started doing it one step at a time. You didn't see the end down here. You started that first step and still continuing to do that. Yes, and that is the key. Staying in the here and now, that is a very important element to the walk of recovery because oftentimes those who struggle will catastrophize or overpersonalize something. Mm -hmm. They say in yesterday or tomorrow, but it's very hard to stay in today. And cancer has given me the opportunity and the knowledge of how to stay in today. So we can't wallow in our own misery because we'll never get out of it. No. And there's no guarantees in life. Life just is. Life just is. And you deal with it as it comes. Yes, you do. Whatever comes your way. You don't have to go to substances. You don't have to go to, you know, alcohol, drugs, work, whatever. In in your work as a peer coach, have you found that men and women handle it the same way or do women need more strength to get out of it, or maybe men, because men get real hard-headed. Men probably need more of of a lift and more a support. 
Well, I see. I would, I wouldn't compare them to each other. Okay. But what I would say for men is an opportunity for them to learn how to speak, mm-hmm. and sometimes that comes from an all men's group where there aren't women there to distract them. And for women, I think they need to learn how to encourage other women, which they can do sometimes without the distraction of men. So sometimes at the beginning of the walk, it might be behoove them to have individual groups as well as intermingled groups. It depends on what their trauma is. Yeah. If you have a co-ed group it should, and everybody's focused on becoming healthy. Oh, no. They're focused on. You're not going to be distracted. <laughs> to, no, they're, they're watching you're the whoever's combing coach, their huh? hair across the table or, or really? whatever. Oh, yes. There's opportunity. There's so many uh, what they call a hookup. <laughs> and it's that an opportunity can distract you from yes. distract you from what you're doing and then you're you right need. down the rabbit hole you're right down it again yes wow you've got to you've got to put your boundaries in. and people who are struggling do not understand healthy boundaries mm-hmm. not at all and that's something that we teach when that's we healthy practice. boundaries yes and and are healthy boundaries set individually or are there some commonalities that you can share with us what healthy boundaries are. Well, what are, one of the things you have to do is learn how to say no. And then you have to understand that a healthy boundary doesn't mean that you have to help everybody. Cause there comes this mm-hmm. time when, Oh, I want to help everybody. Cause I'm feeling a lot better now. Well, their picker is broke. They're not going to help somebody who's going to come in and then rob them yeah. or do something worse. And, uh, they have to, Trust the process. It takes a little time to understand who they could do that with, mm-hmm. you know, and to understand more about themselves, they get healthier and healthier. And through that, they could understand what a healthy boundary is. And I think it's a real personal thing as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes on, comes along with the one-on-one therapy with the therapist. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is for the individual, they get to address that. You're saying that you have to trust the process. Yes. And to let the process work. Yes, you do. Because oftentimes, especially when you're... But they're going to say, well, my friend Pookie, you know, he went through the process and it did work for him and it ain't going to work for me. Why should I try it? <laughs> that comes back to the belief and it comes back to the decision. And when you're in it and you're working with a therapist mm-hmm. and you find out you're, you're three months clean, right? And you're clinging on to the people who are, who are your safety net. And you don't want to change. And then you find out that you have a new therapist that you have to go to. You could get very upset or very fearful. And right then and there, you have to make another decision. I'm going to trust the process. Somebody outside of me knows what's better for me than I do. Mm-hmm. And, right. I'm, but, and I'm going to trust it. But don't some of them say, well, you know, I've been clean for three months. I've been clean for six months. So if I just have a little good time right now, I'm going to be okay. Sure, I hear it every day. And I see them right back. That's a lie that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yes. And that's the time I brought it up. Yes. Because I, it's I, just I, a I lie. That. It's just a lie. Yes. And you're able to label it as that, and they probably get mad at you about it too, don't they? <laughs> they laugh at me because <laughs> I do call it as I see it. Well, for, for both of you, at the end of the day, the state can sue drug companies and, and all that other stuff so we got, so Americans will have their bad guy to blame. But in order for America to get healthier, it's an individual walk and it's an individual decision. And then it's a coming together as a community. It's reuniting. Yeah. Yeah. Reconnecting. What's the one thing you want 
everyone to know that they can do to get themselves better from your experience? Anybody can make a choice. And I have never seen such heart and such determination as I do with the clients that I have. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I could do part of it for them, and I cannot. Yeah. But I want them to know that their decisions are valid and that they are powerful. They are so very, very powerful. Just use it in a different direction. That's what I want them to know. And in our conversation today, you didn't say anything about, well, what's happened to me, what's in the past that's still there. You're focused on future. Yes. I am, I am right here today. And, and so I'm sure the, 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 the other people that you've coached, you haven't focused on future. You can't change the past, but you can interdict and set up a good future. Yes, you sure can. It's like when they say it takes 21 days to make or break a, a habit, a lot of people will start thinking about, oh, you know, I'm fat, and this whatever, to, to break their habit. They yeah. focus on that. Well, that's not the way to go about it. Mm-hmm. I, I like to encourage people to focus on the life that they want, the lifestyle that they want. And what do they need to do to to achieve that? And we don't have to bring up baggage from the past in order to do that. We can be in the right here and now, and we can go from this day forward. And what does it look like? Most people don't know what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. They're too bogged down by the baggage of their past. James, after several years of legal marijuana, are we seeing any really bad things happening or things kind of okay. Maybe they're not as bad as we thought they were going to be. <laughs> From a data standpoint, the jury is still out. However, uh, anything or anyone that takes control away from you in your life uh, is not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I would encourage uh, those who are thinking about recovery to get control of their lives. Don't let something take control away from them take their life away from them. Every single day at Mile High Behavioral Healthcare, we see people walk in one way and walk out another. And change is possible. We thank Miss Laura with James Gillespie, Community Impact and Government Relations Liaison of Mile High Behavioral Healthcare, for being our guest on this edition. You have heard her testimony, sharing her heartfelt insight, so you can save and support yourself. Well, the ball is in your court right now. Thanks much. Miss Laura. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.